Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 140 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Since retiring from medical practice, I've become an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is remembrance of psychiatric patients' past. Remembrance is important because as a society we're still challenged by our assumptions about mental illnesses and the challenges these assumptions create for persons with mental illnesses, persons who've been diagnosed with mental illnesses, persons' families and family caregivers. Even though we are making progress, our assumptions about mental illnesses are still unclear, uncertain, and at times unreliable. To make more progress, we need to better understand the assumptions in the past and how these led to wrong, harmful, and unfair treatment of persons with mental illnesses. The past history of assumptions about mental illnesses is thousands and thousands of years long, but it's a history that extends to this very day in the several class action lawsuits in Ontario, Canada, regarding the standards of care and even abuse of persons with mental illness in modern mental facilities. So understanding this history, painful though it is, is necessary if we are to make more progress in responding to the challenges of mental illnesses, which is why our guest today, Dr. Jeffrey Rion is talking about remembrance of psychiatric patients' past. Jeffrey is Associate Professor in the Critical Debilities Studies graduate program at York University, where he's taught since 2004. His research is informed by his experiences as a psychiatric inpatient and outpatient when he was a teenager and a young adult. He's been involved in the Toronto Psychiatric Survivor Community since 1990. His doctoral dissertation, that's his PhD, was published as Remembrance of Patients Past, Patient Life at the Toronto Hospital for the Insane, 1870 to 1940. He's a co-founder of Psychiatric Survivor Archives Toronto, started in 2001. Since 2000, he's given over a hundred history tours of the Toronto Asylum Boundary Walls, 
which were built in the 19th century by patients at what is now known as the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. He's written books on his research. He's introduced and taught mad people's history at all three universities in Toronto. And in 2009-2010, he received the Faculty of Graduate Studies Teaching Award at York University. So welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Thank you very much, Gordon. Glad to be here. Right. Now, let's start, please, with the first question for you. I want you to tell us more about your professional career. Mm-hmm. Your work as a historian, author, video producer, and playwright. Tell us more, if we please. Okay, sure. Well, I, I'm, uh, as you mentioned, a historian. I, my degrees are all in history, and my interest in history is, uh, goes back to when I was very young and of course, uh, when I became a psychiatric patient, I started reading about psychiatric history afterwards, and I saw that there was very little, almost nothing, besides one or two books from a historian in Britain, Roy Porter, um, from about uh, psychiatric history from the patient's points of view. So I decided to do research and try to find out uh, my own um, uh, research on psychiatric patient history here in Canada. And so that's why I ended up doing the research Search on the Queen Street Asylum because uh, in Toronto, 999 Queen Street West, because I thought uh, they certainly deserved or certainly needed to have the perspectives of psychiatric patients um, told from a historical point of view because most of what had been written had been from the physician's point of view, but nothing from the patients. And I was fortunate when I went into the archives of Ontario, which is where these records were held and still are held, uh, that I was able to find a lot of documents either written by patients or about them by others um, giving their perspectives and so that's what I used from uh, from doing this so that's what's inspired me to do my work as, a, as an academic and historian and uh, also as uh, a part of which was used in a, a play as you mentioned by other um, activists uh, in Friendly Spike Theatre Band, uh, Ruth Stackhouse and Ken Ennis in particular um, who, who are professional actors and uh, dramaturged it. I wrote a play and they dramaturged it um, and uh, put it on. So uh, in 1998, again in 99, and again in 2000. So uh, so there's been different ways of getting the word out about our history, in, both in print and in and, and from the, literally from the page to the stage. Right, Jeffrey. More personal question now. What was the medical diagnosis that you were given as a young person? Mm. What did you understand by that diagnosis? And how did the diagnosis affect your life as a young person? Jeffrey? Yeah, well, actually, I was uh, given a couple of diagnoses when I was uh, first started seeing a psychiatrist when I was almost 14. I was 13. uh, And then when I was 14, they gave me, I was given the diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. I have to admit, I honestly didn't know what it meant. I had never heard of this term before. My parents certainly knew what it meant. I remember their... uh, they were quite upset when the doctor mentioned it, um, understandably so, uh, in retrospect. But at the time, I have to admit, it didn't really have an impact on me. What did have an impact in terms of immediate impact, it certainly had an impact on my life, of course, but um, in terms of how I thought about myself, what had more of an impact uh, in terms of how I, I, I um, 
felt the the, the diagnosis um, made me impact uh, how I felt uh, on my own self-image was when I was told I was emotionally disturbed. That's that had an impact. I could understand that, but paranoid schizophrenia, I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> to be perfectly blunt. So it took a while, but then eventually, as the time went on, of course, I, I understood more of what was being discussed. And of course, I met many other psychiatric patients as time went on. And um, it affected my life by eventually being in a couple of psychiatric hospitals, one for uh, children and adolescents in Windsor, called the Regional Children's Center when I was 14, another when I was uh, 16 in St. Thomas Psychiatric Hospital, and then as an outpatient for seven years. So it Im impacted me uh, by uh, the fact that I was um, basically given a diagnosis which basically said that I was uh, mentally disturbed and uh, that I also stopped going to school at that time. So of course that has quite an impact on you at any time in life, but especially when you're an adolescent and teenager. Um, and so uh, it changed my whole view of, of the world, I guess you could say, as well as of myself in relation to other people. Fortunately, I had a very supportive family, um, and that had a huge impact. I wouldn't be here otherwise, uh, uh, but that was essential. And I also saw how other people who weren't as fortunate to have a supportive family were treated. and uh, it, really was an education for me in that sense. So part of it was uh, also seeing that I was quite fortunate in many respects to uh, have the, so the love and support I did have and realize uh, that whatever difficulties I encountered, there is, I had a lot of advantages compared to many other people who are in the mental health system who, who didn't have that level of support. Jeffrey, another personal question. Please tell us how your personal experience with the mental health system influenced the evolution of your successful career. Well, because successful it is. Yeah, well, thank you. Yes, well, I guess uh, I, I very much, uh, as I mentioned, wanted to do very much study history from psychiatric patients' points of view. So I uh, initially, when I went I dropped out of school when I was a teenager, but I went back to university as a young adult, to University of Windsor, and did European history. There was no psychiatric history or anything there. Um, and then I came to Toronto to do my MA, University of Toronto, to do my MA and PhD, and did labor history for my MA. But in my PhD, I did Canadian medical history. And it was then that I, I felt that I really wanted to do this, this history that I what in the back of my mind was always uh, something I wanted to do more about because I, I read some psychiatric history and it was full of stereotypes about psychiatric patients. You didn't have any sense of patients as having uh, relationships or friendships or, or any complexity beyond their diagnosis and that bothered me and I said, well, wait a minute, I remember having lots of friends and uh, more complexity than is given uh, an impression in, in a lot of the history books. So I decided I wanted to do more research on it and um, and that's uh, that's basically what I did. Unfortunately, I was able to find a lot of evidence of understanding the his this history from the patient's points of view in which people supported each other, had friendships, weren't uh, simply being acted upon, but had lives of their own. And that's that's something that I thought was very important to emphasize. So what was it, what was the moment in which you you turned and said, I want to be a historian. Oh, well, 
well, I, as I, I actually started reading history seriously even before I went into the, and long before I became diagnosed. I, really, when I was 11 and 12, I started reading a lot of books, history books, um, first on World War II and then graduated to lots of other things as well, while still enjoying 20th century world history. Um, but I, um, I, I really didn't decide to become a historian per se, consciously, until I, I just went, well, first of all, when I went back to university, uh, I was in my early 20s, and I had only a grade 8 degree, uh, a diploma, and I had stopped going to school when I was 14. I didn't even know if I could do this, and so when I first started getting my grades back, and they were respectable and good, I thought, well, hey, I, I can actually do this, and and so I enjoyed it very much, and like I said, I did European history. It wasn't really until I came to um, U of T that I, is when I really decided this is what I really wanted to do, because I loved history all the time. I just was, it's a matter of building up one's confidence that you can really do this. So uh, that, pardon? I just say that, that's, unfortunately, we have a tyranny of time, and I have to stop you, because uh, we do okay. have to take the break. Sure, that's uh, okay. And I'm very reluctant to stop you, because it's a great, a great history <laughs> you're telling. Okay. So, let's take the break now. Okay. This is Dr. Gordon Adelim, my guest is Dr. Jeffrey Riom. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We will be back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Jeffrey Riom. Our topic is Remembrance of Psychiatric Patients Past. Now let's talk about the history of the history of treatment of people whose medical diagnoses led to their being confined to facilities that in the past were called asylums for the insane. So, Jeffrey, what were the asylums for the insane? What purposes were they created to serve? And what were the assumptions and understandings that underpinned these places? Well, asylums for the insane first uh, developed, of course, the or original asylums uh, go back, uh, even if we could 
take it all the way back to the 9th and 10th centuries in what in Mesopotamia, or what is now Iraq, but in, uh, the, the original asylums were set up in, in, in Muslim countries, Islamic countries, in what is now what we would call the Middle East or West Asia. But as far as our um, more recent times and in, in, in Canada and North America and Western Europe, asylums um, proper in terms of how we understand them today really began in the 18th century, although there were some predecessors before then with madhouses in places like Bedlam, which go back to the 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries. But really, the, the modern asylum, as we know, began in the late 18, 18th century, the late 1700s, and the early 19th century, the early 1800s. And that was with the creation of what were called retreats originally, and um, they were used to um, get people out of what were considered the crowded, overcrowded urban environments and cities that were believed to be driving people literally mad. And so the original asylums were supposed to be, quite literally, an asylum from society, a retreat from society. And the famous York Retreat in Britain is a good example of that, which uh, was very famous in the 1790s, set up by uh, a group of Quakers. Um, and it was partly to uh, to get away from the very overcrowded um, madhouses that were really not very well run, to say the least, that were over, uh, not just overcrowded, but were terribly operated and uh, lots of scandals about them. And so the idea was to have a place where uh, physicians eventually who took over from the more lay, lay um uh, managers of the madhouses would uh, start what would be called moral therapy in which people in a large asylum set in a country setting, a, a pastoral setting, would be doing a certain amount of light leisure and labor work uh, to supposedly get people away from their thoughts that were troubling them. And originally the idea, this idea was that the asylum should be about three, no more than 300 people to be therapeutic. So the, the goal was that if they were to be uh, places of retreats for people who are troubled, where who would be uh, given a certain uh, regimented routine to get them away from thinking whatever it was that was distressing them. The problem was, though, these places eventually became very overcrowded themselves as more and more asylums became uh, uh, built in the 19th century uh, in Western Europe, especially Britain, uh, as well as in, in Canada and the United States. Um, and so there were the asylums, the idea of a retreat, they ended up becoming uh, very overcrowded with large numbers of people. And so that by the mid-1800s, uh, the asylums ended up becoming what were referred to as warehouses for the insane, where large numbers of people were, were confined in, in pretty dismal conditions in, in many cases. Um, and so the uh, uh, retreats ended up not being such the great retreats that they thought they would would be the original architects envisioned them. They weren't as much of the asylum as they thought. And um, not only because it became overcrowded, but in the case of places like Toronto's Queen Street, uh, they, they weren't set in a country setting for very long. The Queen Street Asylum in Toronto uh, was set originally out in the countryside, but within about 30 years, the country had 
caught up to that site, which is now near Queen and Ossington in downtown Toronto, and surpassed it. So in many cases, places not just in Toronto but elsewhere, uh, original asylum locations out in the country soon became very crowded urban areas. And so their setting wasn't really a retreat from the city at all. They were very much part of the city. Right. Jeffrey, I'm going to move to your examination of the medical files um, mm-hmm. in, in the Toronto Hospital from 1870 to 1940. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you learn from mm-hmm. looking at those files and how typical would those files be of patients' files in hospitals of the day, asylums of the day? Right. Well, one of the things I think what was very important that um, the files revealed and the patient lives revealed was was uh, a lot the enormous amount of work the patients did a huge amount of work uh, a great deal of labor but uh, unpaid labor by psychiatric patients both men and women basically ran the asylums in a way by uh, having them do an enormous amount of work from everything from maintenance to uh, sewing laundry cleaning uh, literally building the wall around the asylum, the boundary walls in different buildings. So that was certainly a major part of it, of the what I would call the exploitation of patient labor uh, at that time because they they would, uh, the superintendents would have patients do a lot of work uh, in order to, as one superintendent, Daniel Clark, say, said, save, save public works tens of thousands of dollars. He wrote that in, in the 1890s when they had them doing work building the walls. So uh, that was, an, it was just the enormous amount of work the patients did, which was quite revealing. Also, the the extensive uh, nature of the patients' relationships uh, with one another, and in some cases with staff, the friendships they had, and of course they would, uh, with with other patients, was very important. Of course, there could be uh, disputes or conflicts like there is in any any setting, um, especially one where you're confined against one's will, as was the case in most cases here. But nevertheless, there's also uh, important to emphasize how people also supported one another and helped each other, for example. That has often not, not been discussed in a lot of the history books. Um, and that's for, to give a good example, as I found some files where a few women gave birth and other women patients would act uh, as support, uh, as, long, as well as the paid nursing staff, uh, what we would now call midwives. They don't, they didn't use that term in the files, but those sorts of supports as well, um, and the friendships people had with each other. Another patient who died, uh, her sister wanted to make sure a friend of hers uh, had uh, her clothing left to her because uh, the, the woman's friend had been very supportive of her uh, and, and the fellow patient. So other patients were very supportive of each other and, and um, not at all uh, violent, as we saw from the popular image. Um, or distortion, I would argue. In fact, even Daniel Clark, who was the superintendent at the Toronto Asylum from 1875 to 1905, repeatedly wrote in the annual reports about the stereotypes of patients being violent, and he said the vast majority of patients there were not violent. He estimated that only 5% of patients there would be classified as violent, could be in any way classified as violent. In other words, 95% of the people there were not a threat to anyone, and yet if you look at the media stereotypes, you would get the idea that asylum is full of violent, mad people who are going around trying to hurt each other or other people, and that's simply not the truth, and I think that's important to emphasize.
Yeah, Jeffrey, very clear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, let me go now to this boundary wall, this brick mm-hmm. wall. You wrote a book um, and you produced a video mm-hmm. of you giving a tour of the brick wall you're talking about. You've written all kinds of things, as we've said. You've written a play, Angels of 999. Now, each of those um, writings, those uh, authorships are telling a story. But there's a big story, I think, uh, that all the stories are contributing to. So what is the big story that you've taken from all of these uh, investigations of a historical nature that you've done? Please. Well, the big story is, is that the patients are, are people. <laughs> I know that sounds very basic, but it, I mean, honestly, if you look at the, as I say, the stereotypes of it all, in, in not just in the media, but in, I, I actually wrote an article about how historians in English-speaking Canada have written stereotypes of people with psychiatric disabilities or psychiatric diagnoses. And um, so it's, uh, I think one of the most important things to emphasize is to discuss how psychiatric patients are basically like everybody else. There, you don't. Most people don't know that the person sitting next to them on the bus or in the in the at a play or or walking down the street are are people who may have had a psychiatric uh, experience as a psychiatric patient, past, present, or current. Um, and uh, it's only occasionally can you tell because of uh, uh, the medication and and the impact of the medication on someone, or of course if you're at the hospital itself. But uh, it's at the point that I emphasize is to to show that the big story is that these individual stories are are are, are of us, of our of our own lives, of our relatives, of our friends, of people who uh, we often don't even realize have this history. And in fact, since I've been uh, giving uh, tours of the wall and uh, discussing the history over the time, I've had people who you wouldn't give a second look to come up to me and say privately they had this experience in a hospital or been in a, some kind of psychiatric treatment and they're not public about it. And these are people who are both, uh, you know, people who, who are not in high-profile positions to people who are in various positions, and um, including professors, other professors who've talked to me at different universities. So uh, people uh, don't realize a lot of the people, not only that you're sitting next to, but in some cases the people you're taught by have had these experiences. Um, and I think that's important to emphasize. That's the big story that, that these psychiatric patients I'm writing about or researched about are, are us and our people in our community whom we should be um, accepting and 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 engaging not uh, not making looks feel as if they are some sort of strange other person who we should ostracize which has been a part of the history right now it is time to, for us to take the break jeffrey so um, we'll do it now. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Dr. Jeffrey Riom. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned, we're coming back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
How has your belief system been formed? Has it been based on others telling you what to believe? Do you desire to make changes in your life that you know will bring you deeper fulfillment? Tune in to The Ripple Effect with Katherine Cloward for your weekly dose of inspiration and encouragement. Whether it be in your business, personal relationships, or family life, this show will help you recognize and trust your intuitive knowing. Catherine and her guests will help inspire you to make fulfilling choices for your life. The Ripple Effect is heard live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Are you ready for an open, informative, and fun discussion on health, wellness, and a whole lot more? If so, you'll need to tune in to The Good Life with Forbes Riley and Charlie, featuring award-winning TV host Forbes Riley and multimedia producer, author, and CEO Charlie Fusco. Our show is real, honest, opinionated, and full of laughs. Our well-known guests of authors, experts, and celebrities will give you the inside scoop on health, fitness, and personal success. The Good Life with Forbes Riley and Charlie is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Jeffrey Riom. Our topic is Remembrance of Psychiatric Patients Past. Now, Jeffrey, let's identify what we can from the history of caring for mental illness. Now, first of all, first question to you, Jeffrey, is this. What can we learn from the history of caring for mental illness about the role of family caregiving? Well, one thing is that we could uh, learn a great deal is how obviously essential family caregiving is to a person's mental health, although it depends on the con- what's going on in the context of each family, of course. Some families, there are, uh, some families have been immensely supportive in helping somebody who is experiencing mental health disability. Others, other families haven't been, and in fact, in some cases, have driven the person to a state of psychiatric uh, despair or mental health despair. And that can be, for example, someone who has been abused within a family or uh, otherwise mistreated, and that certainly happened. I've known people for whom that has happened. Fortunately, that's definitely not what happened with me. I was quite fortunate in that I had a very supportive family, but many others, people I know who who had uh, less supportive families um, have had to uh, look elsewhere for support and create their own families, if you will. But as far as support from family and, and friends, caregiving, one is, of course, is, is essential, is, is the um, support that is not judgmental and, and basically saying to someone, pull up your own bootstraps or, or something like that, which is incredibly unfair consider, considering what a person is going through, uh, but trying to understand the need that families have for supports in the community as well, which is 
important, as well as the individual person. Uh, historically, families haven't had a lot of support in, in the community. Certainly in the 19th and early to mid-20th centuries, uh, they were basically on their own unless they they were had to have a relative in, in the asylum. They, it was up to them to come to visit somebody, but if their relative was living out in the community and, and uh, was having an experience of um, a mental health disability of some kind, they would, uh, it was basically up to them to find supports. And there wasn't the sort of community engagements or supports most places. And even now, in the late 20th century, there's been a lot um, a lot of uh, gaps in services as well, supports for family members. But there's been more effort, of course, to provide community supports in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, but needless to say, much more needs to be done. Um, but I guess what we can learn from it is to making sure that their government support is there and is encouraged to be there rather than uh, as being left up to the individual family members or, or individual who's experiencing the crisis and also recognizing that in some cases family support um, is uh, is something that some patients uh, want to make sure is done in a way that supports their needs as well because sometimes there can be differences in in what the patient or what the family member wants and so uh, understanding where the patient is coming from is extremely uh, the person who has a psychiatric disability is coming from is very important in the process right Jeffrey it's basically the same question um, but it's a different uh uh, a different subject. That is, what can we learn from the history of caring for mental illnesses about the role of the medical and social professions? Well, one thing we can learn is the essential need for the medical and social professions to engage people with psychiatric disability or madness um, as people and not just to impose their views. That's been part of the history and one of the major criticisms of the caring professions or the medical and social professions is in historically it's been a sort of a top-down approach. It's only been in the last 30, 40 years due to the uh, activism of psychiatric patients and psychiatric survivors and activists and psychiatric consumers, different terms that different people use that um, have insisted that uh, we be listened to that this is this has begun to change significantly, and more people with a psychiatric history are being are being listened to more. But it's still a long way to go, and that's something that I should point out. It's not just the last thirty or forty years e- either. I mean, uh, in the late eighteen hundreds, there was there in the mid eighteen hundreds, there was actually a group in Britain who was of ex patients that were demanding uh, that uh, that uh, mental health officials, medical officials listen to the perspectives of patients and similarly in the early 20th century there were people like Clifford Beers in the United States who, who made the similar arguments um, um, although from a sorry, somewhat different perspective but nevertheless so there have been people over the last uh, number quite a few years who've oh, in, in psychiatric history mad people's history who have advocated for listening to patients perspectives or mad people's perspectives and and from that the doctors not just impose their point of view that this is the diagnosis this is what you must do and uh, no further discussion there has to be a, a, an obvious give and take and, and with the physician 
and the patient, and uh, otherwise it becomes not therapeutic but uh, oppressive. And that's, I think, something that's very important to engage in. Um, and of course, there are issues around gender, class, race, sexual orientation that all come into focus there as well. And um, so that's important to emphasize. Jeffrey, again, the same sort of question, but this time the subject is society. What can we as a society learn from the history of caring for mental illness? Well, one thing I think uh, we can learn is, is um, the abilities of people with, uh, who have experienced madness, mental illness, psychiatric disabilities, whatever term people choose to use. There are many abilities that people don't realize individuals have, um, often because it's hidden because of the discrimination. People aren't, aren't public or, or um, there is very little um, discussion of it in, in, of different abilities that people have either as authors or creators of different um, artistic works, which in that sense, it does, there is some discussion of, of some authors and, and famous artists. Van Gogh is probably the most famous, but most people are not famous, world-famous artists or authors. They're people who are living day-to-day -day lives who are contributing in their community. So I think what we can learn from the history of caring for mental illness is to recognize that um, to care for people who have a psychiatric history is to recognize the abilities people have as either uh, working in the community, such as somebody who, who literally can build walls, masons are a good example, somebody who's a mason, somebody who, who works in, in a, at, a, at a bakery, the people who are, are capable of, of raising a family um, and who contribute to their community in different ways different ways, and that's, I think, extremely important of understanding that um, basically what we can learn from a society, uh, what we can learn as a society from this history is to fight against the discrimination and the stereotypes that basically makes it sound as if you have a psychiatric history, you're incapable of, of caring for oneself or, or participating in society. Certainly people do need supports and and uh, and, and um, all kinds of uh, assistance uh, when uh, in mental anguish, and there's no question that uh, that's essential. At the same time, as recognizing that people also um, can participate and be a part of society in ways that are often unrecognized, which is important. Jeffrey, talking of learning, something I've learned from listening to you is this: that uh, the in the past there were the kind of understanding that um, are important and helpful in uh, working with helping, supporting people with mental illnesses. For example, you've just been talking about work. Mm -hmm. um, that is to say, the idea of building the wall wasn't necessarily a bad or evil one. Um, and therefore, uh, the idea now that people should be encouraged to work, even when uh, there has been some kind of a diagnosis, uh, is an inheritance from those times when there was uh, an optimistic, uh, a forward-looking, a respectful attitude. Now, am I, um, I, I want you to say whether you agree or disagree with me. Am I putting too rosy a picture on the past, or am I fairly interpreting you? Please tell me. 
Well, I think that uh, a lot of the, uh, the history that we're looking at is it, it it isn't very rosy at all. I have to admit, I, I think a lot of the history history of where people were doing the building the wall was first to confine people inside the in the asylum and to keep them out of society and to make sure they realize they're not part of society anymore. And so um, the place building a, a boundary wall around the institution, having the very people who were in the facility literally bricking themselves in, I thought uh, it was, it, it was uh, I think, a very poignant way of understanding what I would call the, the uh, exploitation of patient labor. So I, I would see that even while the idea on moral treatment was to engage people who had madness or psychiatric disability um, in a way that was supposedly uh, get them thinking of things other than their whatever was troubling them. On the other hand, it was really done uh, ultimately to to save the province money or the state money wherever it was done. It wasn't just Canada; it was other countries as well, including the United States and Britain and France and so on. And um, they, the idea was very much to uh, take to basically exploit their labor. So I think these the places, the, the original vision was to create a, a place of, of retreat and, and, and a therapeutic retreat, which was what the asylum was supposed to be for, but uh, theoretically, but ultimately it, came, it came, became a place like a, a prison. In fact, the original uh, name asylum was, was became such a bad um, uh, association in the public's mind that they changed the name from asylum by the late 19th and early 20th centuries in, in many places to hospitals. Like here in Ontario, they changed the asylums officially to hospitals in 1907 because they they became associated with asylum became like almost another word for a prison and hospital had a, a more hopeful therapeutic ring to it. But nevertheless, the, the, the ideas were... Uh, very much top down, and so I think even though there there's a lot of of negative parts of the history, more recently there are more efforts to engage people who have the have history of being a patient to be a part of the process of making policies being involved in the mental health system, but it's still a long, long way to go. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't think there's too many <laughs> roses in our in our history, right, in the past or present, unfortunately. Jeffrey, thank you for clearing that up. Now, it, is t it is time for us to take the break. This okay. is Dr. Dr. Gordon Everett, and my guest is Dr. Jeffrey Riom. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned, we're coming back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Listen to the women's side of the fitness industry on Fitness RX Radio. If you're looking to stay healthy and look great or are getting ready to compete athletically, this is the show for you. We'll look at competitions from the inside out, bring you fitness tips, nutrition to keep you on top of your game, and so much more. 
We want to hear from you too. And we'll take your questions by phone or email. Tune in to Fitness RX Radio, airing every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Look and feel your best. You've got your family and you need to keep talking and you need to keep understanding and look into yourself, who you are, what kind of person you want to be. What would be the one most simple advice you would give to a healing agoraphobic? I don't know if it's a panic attack or whatever it is. It's happening very frequently. I don't have to be in any place where there's no air. It can happen even on the road. People get over things. You can't look back. You've got to look forward and learn something from your past. Join Dr. Raymond Hamden in the psychologist's chair every Tuesday at 9 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Jeffrey Riom. Our topic is Remembrance of Psychiatric Patients Past. Let's now talk about the things that should be done better in supporting and caring for persons with mental illnesses. And also, let's talk about your messages. Now, first of all, Jeffrey, what are the things for persons with mental illness that the medical profession should do better? Well, uh, one thing is uh, to engage people with mental health disabilities or madness uh, as equals and recognize that people who have these experiences are experts uh, of their own lives, even if people may not know uh, all of the um, background of the medical diagnoses or interpretations. Uh, nevertheless, people who have these experiences should ultimately treat it as as experts in their own experiences and not to be simply dismissed uh, for what they're saying or that everything they say is a hallucination. I'll give you a good example of what I mean. Uh, some years ago, a very dear friend of mine who has since died, um, and uh, his first name was Ron, he had been a patient on and off for many years in the mental health system, and I had known him. Uh, I knew him for 13 years at the time of his death, at the time of his death, a few years before he died when he was in the hospital. He had been talking about a, a person he had known as a friend, uh, and I won't say the person's name, but the person was a well-placed person, and um, the staff didn't take it seriously, thought it was a hallucination. Well, I happened to have known this person, and I knew that Ron and this person were friends, and this person was indeed very well-placed, and, and I said, oh yeah, I, I knew so-and-so, and I could see the look on both the staff's face was like, what? And Ron's face was oh, like a relief that someone was actually validating what he was saying because I knew what he was saying was true because I knew both him and the person he said was their friend. Ron was very poor. He had virtually nothing but the clothes on his back. And so the idea was that maybe he's just a hallucination. He's just thinking out dreaming this all up because this person was so well-placed. But in fact, no, it was true. So the point I'm trying to get at is that someone like Ron 
it was his views were could be easily dismissed because he had no you know great prestige or or uh, position in society but take listen to what he's saying try to and, and take him seriously and try to meet him at his where he's at or she's at as the case may him or her and understand what what they're trying to say and don't dismiss things out of hand. I think that's uh, very important to understand where people are coming from and uh, that uh, individuals who have these experiences have a lot more knowledge about them than, than we often uh, give, give, our, uh, give them uh, uh, credit for. Key message. Now, same question, but to do with governments and healthcare planners. Mm-hmm. What are the things for persons with mental illnesses that the governments and healthcare planners should do better? Well, one thing is provide a lot more money to people with uh, psychiatric history or psychiatric survivors and consumer advocacy organizations um, to engage people with these histories as as part of the the uh, the, the decision making uh, group who decides what kind of policies are enacted and uh, where the money should go and 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 truly engage people in this area including people who are critical of um of the uh, um, mental health um, system as it exists now um, in order to change it. And I think that's that's very important as well. And so I think uh, it's very crucial to to make sure that when the changes are, are, are advocated, the people who are making the, have the strongest voice are people with these, they, who have the direct personal experience within the psychiatric system and from a variety of perspectives because we're not all going to have the same point of view um, but the important thing is that different views are are, are listened to uh, to to make uh, the system more responsive, the mental system more responsive than it has, it has been historically. What is or what are your messages for persons with mental illnesses and their family caregivers, Jeffrey? Uh, well, I would say um, we have a lot to be proud of. First of all, in our history, in our current. Uh, um, state as well. I mean, it, 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 we have a lot of, there's a lot of despair and sadness and tragedy in our history, but there's also a lot of hope and pride. We've com- contributed a great deal to our communities, uh, past, present, and and uh, in the future. And I think that, that that's extremely important, that the message is that uh, we uh, are part of the community, that we shouldn't feel in any way um, that there's anything to be ashamed of because it's very common for people to feel uh, ashamed of their histories if that community has consistently been put down throughout history, which has been very common in, in our community's history. But um, to recognize that there have been people who have been advocating for rights amongst people who have been described, variously described as mentally ill, psychiatric patients, mad, uh, consumers, survivors, and have been advocating for change really in, in, for over 300 years in some cases uh, in, in Britain and in goes back to the early 1700s and in and uh, over the last 40 years especially in in Canada there's been a great deal of this advocacy so to remember that uh, that there are people who are allies and supporters who, who want to make positive changes to be supportive of people with psychiatric histories and to engage us as equals not as as uh, subordinates who should be imposed upon 
The answer I got from you regarding physicians, healthcare system, governments, and planners mm-hmm. is li- is listen mm-hmm. to the people who, if you'll forgive this language, who've been there and done that. That is to say, yeah. who've lived the experience. Yeah. And your message to family, to persons with mental illnesses and their families, is be proud of yourselves. Mm-hmm. You've you've overcome. Or, or if, if not overcome, at least to you, you have contributed a lot and made a lot of contribute, contributions. It's important. Yes. And that you're, you've been capable of those That's contributions. Right. right. And that you've had the personality, the strength, whatever it is, to actually carry through on them and deliver on those opportunities. Right. Those are powerful stories. And therefore, they go back to listen and respect your messages to my profession, to governments, planners, and the rest of them. Jeffrey, that's a very powerful, very powerful mm-hmm. summary. Um, and I want to, because we're going to unfortunately have to close, close the show in a moment, but I want to say a very strong thank you for that message, for distilling the history for us, and turning that into insights of the kind that you've just shared with us. And so all I can say to you is carry on, because it's vitally needed that we understand the things of the past and what we can learn from them. Yes, well, thanks very much, Karen. Okay. Now, um, just to wind up, unfortunately, this is a job I have to do. At Family Mm -hmm. Caregivers Unite, we welcome hearing from listeners, and we also want to hear from people who would like to be our guests or who have suggestions for topics. So in our next episode, we'll talk about spring-free trampolines and children with special needs. Please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.